Hi, and welcome back to the Life in Bomb City podcast. My name is Aaron Favor, and this morning I'm sitting here with Frank Belizzi and Mr. Uh, or Dr. Brian Agracia from West Texas A&M University. Today is a very special morning. This is a, a special podcast, and our uh, special host this morning is going to be uh, Mr. Frank Belizzi. Hello. And take it away, Frank. All right. Well, I'm sitting here with uh, a friend and neighbor of mine. It's kind of a strange, uh, unique situation we have where uh, Brian moved into the neighborhood where I live um, before I moved there. And uh, sometime after that, what we, he came down and introduced himself because he had heard that the guy who lived two doors down was uh, was also a history. Well, Brian's a history professor. I am my title here at AC is I'm a history instructor. And so he came down and introduced himself to me and said, and, and I heard there's another guy in the neighborhood, actually, who teaches uh, history at the college level. And I said, yeah. And so we that was the beginning of uh, our friendship. So full disclosure, although I'm interviewing. Brian this morning. I'm actually the guy who lives two doors down uh, from him as well. And we've known each other for several years and get together every once in a while and talk shop since we're both uh, American historians. Historians. Uh, Brian has the distinction of having published uh, a, a, a book or two and several articles, some of them at least related to the history of the Panhandle Plains and Amarillo, Texas, which is why I thought he would be perfect for uh, this particular podcast, I'm thinking in particular of an article, Brian. Uh, and by the way, well, welcome to the podcast Thank and you. welcome to this uh, this special edition of uh, Life in Bomb City, because we're thinking about Amarillo and its history with automobiles, cars, car culture, uh, that sort of thing. And it uh, turns out in 2019, uh, Brian published in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly an article called Speed Attractions, subtitled uh, Urban Mobility and Automotive Spectacle in Pre-World War One Amarillo. Um, I remember when this article came out, I read it at the time or recently, I've, I've read it again, getting ready for this podcast and kind of thinking about the history of cars and automobility, if I can use that term, uh, here in Amarillo. And I want to start out by uh, talking a little bit and then getting you, Brian, to respond to uh, sort of where this article fits or what it does uh, for the historiography, what's been written about Amarillo uh, and its history. So we know, uh, or most people are aware of the fact that, you know, say by 1890, shortly after uh, Amarillo was born. Uh, this this new town next to the brand new railroad was one of the busiest cattle shipping points in the world, which is not an exaggeration. So early Amarillo was, among other things, but it's best remembered probably as having been a cow town. And I think a lot of times when people come to Amarillo, they think, well, you know, I've moved to a place that's kind of like this this overgrown uh, or, or you know somewhat developed uh, since then, of course. Uh, Cowtown. But Brian, you write in your article, quote, less scholarly attention has been paid to how the turn of the century panhandle embraced, embraced modernity. Uh, and you say this article fills a significant gap in the history of Texas mobility by focusing on car fueled pre-World War One uh, growth and culture. And then at the end of the article, you kind of uh, nail it down and put a capstone on it by saying, uh, in fact, Amarillo was a car town as much as it was a cow town uh, very, very early 
on. So one of my questions for you, and by the way, it's a, it's a splendid article, very, very interesting. We'll get into some of the details of the article, I hope, as we go along. But my first question for, for you, Brian, is how did you come to recognize that the typical traditional way of thinking about Amarillo in its early years, right, this cow town, uh, that what should be added to that or what should be included is cars, um, automobiles. How did you how did you realize that? Come to that that, that discovery. Sure, that, that's a great question, and thanks, of course, for that nice plug about the article. And it's good to be here today and talking about about this stuff. Uh, the reason why I I kind of discovered this and found this to be interesting is you know I'm I'm not from this area. Um, I'm, I moved here in 2015. I was uh, living outside of Nashville. Before that, I had lived in Atlanta. And I've been uh, working for a number of years now, uh, well over a decade, on a book about um, the history of Indianapolis and auto racing in Indianapolis. And, and really kind of talking about the ways that, um, you know, auto racing as a spectacle is something that it tends to develop in places that are not I don't know how to put it. They're not on water, right? They're not on navigable water. And so these are places that develop technologies, overland technologies about moving people quickly from place to place. And those tend to be the places that develop automotive spectacle. And when I came to Amarillo, you know, I, I, I didn't have the kind of preconceived notion that this was a cow town. You know, I got here and I was looking for a place to live and I was looking at, you know, the way the city was laid out and I started noticing, oh, wow, this is a place that's very much focused on automobiles and automobility. And, um, you know, I was reading Paul Carlson's uh, great book on Amarillo and said, oh, well, he, he has about a paragraph in there about some auto races that happened about 1909 or 1910. And I said, wow, that's a, like the exact same moment that Indianapolis is starting up its auto races. I bet there's more of a story here than just one paragraph. So I started doing a little bit of poking around, found more about the races, but also started noticing, of course, like in other places, auto racing really emerges at the same moment that people are using cars for lots of other purposes, not just to have fun and enjoy themselves, but to get from place to place to have kind of basic what I call urban mobility. And so so that's kind of where that particular article was was born uh, out of a more general desire to see how automobility fits into the history of this this interesting place. But uh, but really kind of, you know, finding those auto races in about 1909, 1910 and then saying, hey, how does that fit into some of these other things going on right about the same time? Really interesting. So your your study of uh, cars in other places and then kind of recognizing that there are in certain ways, uh, Indianapolis is kind of like Amarillo in that it's, you know, kind of landlocked to a, to a degree, Amarillo even more so. So cars would be very, very important to this place. And then your experience of like, hey, it, it, it doesn't look like people walk or ride bicycles very much in Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> They're going every, here, there, and, and yonder in their, uh, in their SUVs and their pickups instead. Uh, you also have this to say in the article, and again, I'm quoting, quote, uh, the panhandle may have been a natural place for cars to gain popularity and fulfill transportation needs. Flat, hard soil made it easy for motorists to take swift trips uh, mm -hmm. over the plains. So it, the flat, hard ground in and around Amarillo actually made it a place that was very friendly uh, to cars before paving was common in America. Could you say a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking about, uh, this is well beyond the time we're talking about here, but there's a 1973 land use study um, for the city of Amarillo where they, they use the phrase at one point that Amarillo has the freedom to sprawl. 
um, which I think tells it says a lot about kind of the the usage of land in this area that there, there are a lot of natural barriers to expansion. I mean, I guess there's there's the canyon and there's the Canadian River breaks, but other than that, it's it's flat. Like you said, it's hard soil. Um, people pretty quickly realize, you know, this is a, a relatively easy place to you know to build an infrastructure that's based on automobiles, you know, say compared to a place like Chattanooga, Tennessee, which of course becomes a very, very important kind of node in the, the Dixie highway network stretching from the Midwest down into Florida. But like Chattanooga of course has automobiles, but like that's the place they, they say, at least that's the place where the, um, where the tow truck was invented because, you know, if you have an accident on one of those Hills, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to get your car back out of there. Where, whereas Amarillo, um, you, the, the plains in general, it's, it's, it's flat. There's all this room to expand. And also with people being spread out so far, you know, it's actually really helpful um, to have these, this technology that's not reliant upon rails. Right. Of course, Amarillo, Amarillo wouldn't exist without the railroad, basically. So, that, that's why it's there. And so once you have the railroad, you have these, these ground-based transportation technologies that aren't dependent upon water it's it's a really convenient place to use these kinds of this kind of technology to get from place to place sure and if your car breaks down you don't have to worry about it rolling away that's, and, uh, unless you're unless you're on the edge of the canyon which <laughs> that does happen sometimes around 1909 1910 a, a few yeah. uh, over the edge experiences yeah, at the time down around canyon yeah you begin the article. I want to go back to the very beginning of this article that you you published back in 2019. You start by describing an auto race here in Amarillo yeah. in 1910. Mm-hmm. And you say, quote, Amarillo's new speedway held a three day auto racing event. Who would have who would have thought that this cow yeah. town in 1910 had a three day auto racing uh, event? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. And, and kind of the, the bigger context is that, that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway opens in like uh, June of 1909. First, first thing there is actually a balloon contest. It's not an auto racing contest. But by August, they July, by July, August, they're doing motorcycle and automobile racing contests. And like every city around America practically is like, yeah, we need one of these. Um, and Amarillo is apparently no exception because by about August of 1909, they are doing auto races. And I'm, I'm almost certain that they're inspired by what they're reading about coming out of Indianapolis. The original um, the original track where they're doing these races is around a playa lake uh, west of uh, present day Georgia uh, Street. Um, and then they figure out, I think that Playa Lakes maybe aren't the most dependable place to have an, an auto race because, <laughs> you know, when it's dry, that's going to be a really good place to race cars. And then if you get a little bit of rain or if it gets muddy or something, it, you know, the weeds start growing, this maybe not going to be so good. So by 1910, they build a, uh, they build a track down by Glenwood electric park, which is kind of this early, like electri- electrified, um, uh, amusement park kind of at the edge of the end of the streetcar line on the kind of south edge of town. I think kind of about where um, Lano Cemetery is at now. All right. So quite, quite a spectacle in Amarillo's earliest early history. Uh, and at that time, you, you tell us in the article, it was standard for a race car to have aboard not just mm-hmm. one person, the driver, of course, but someone else uh, to, 
tell what was the name of this other uh, passenger or person in a race car, and what was that person doing? The, the mechanician, as the they were usually called, or, or the driving mechanic sometimes. So this is a guy who's there. I mean, they don't really have you know mirrors much yet at this point in time. So he's he's there almost as kind of a spotter. You know, if you need to add oil to the engine in the middle of the race, that's his job. You know, it's just kind of a, an all-purpose utility guy. Um, in 1911, when the first Indy 500 is driven, um, the, the guy who wins, he's famous for, for not having a, a, a riding mechanic. Sorry, I said driving earlier. It's a riding mechanic. Um, but he also does have a, a rear view mirror, which is supposedly the first rear view mirror. It's probably not, but it's one of the first rear instances of rear view mirror. Um, eventually at Indianapolis, they stop you know, needing using a, a, a writing mechanic, although in the 1930s, they do reintroduce it and you have to have two, two people in each car. But yeah, it's very common in those 1909, 1910 races in places like Amarillo to have both the driver and, and the, the mechanician or the writing mechanic. That's, that's fascinating. And I can only imagine what it was like to add oil to the engine <laughs> in the middle of a race. So you're traveling at what, 70, 80 miles an hour. Yeah. And here's a guy trying to add oil. It's uh, a dangerous sport. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, anytime there was any uh, a crash or whatever, you're, you're, you've involved at least two people uh, at least. And, and not just the, not just the driver. Uh, harrowing, harrowing experiences. You, you mentioned in the article that, okay, so if we want to identify the first car in Amarillo history, mm-hmm. uh, it's owned by a local physician named W.A. Lockett, who has a car in here in 1904. I believe it was it a Cadillac. Did it, you, was, uh, it was a 1903 model Cadillac all right. made in and, Michigan. But then by 1909, um, Amarillo, this you know progressive era city, uh, goes along with uh, with the the standards of progressivism and insists on cars being registered here. And by 1909, you tell us there are 150 registered mm-hmm. cars uh, in Amarillo, Texas. Take it from there. Uh, so then, coming into the 1910s, let's say, and the era later on of the Great War, uh, which of course most people today call World War One. What happens in Amarillo in in connection with cars? I'm, I imagine it's just more of the same, just uh, exponential growth. Uh, but can, what can you tell us about that? Sure, and I, I forget the exact year, but some, somewhere around 1915, I think there's like 900 cars registered, and that's partly it's not just a local registration; it's it's state mandated registration after about 1907. Okay, um, so so that's something that's happening all around the state. And I think one of the things that you know I I, I noticed as I was writing this article is that historians of Texas in general, they don't talk a lot about automobiles before about the 1920s or even sometimes before the 1950s. And when they do, it's kind of like, you know, oh, farmers like cars, you know, because it helps them get to cities or, you know, kind of maybe a mention of the flappers in the 1920s or something. But if you look at a city like Amarillo, it really shows us that cars are becoming a really important part of the city life well before 1917. And of course, that's happening in other cities, too, in Dallas or Houston or other cities. But historians haven't really talked about it. But Amarillo is a good place for, for kind of seeing how that's happening. Um, yeah, people are registering their cars. They're buying their cars. Of course, 1908, uh, the Model T is introduced uh, by Henry Ford, but not everybody's buying a Ford. There are all these uh, uh, brands that are being produced in Michigan, in Indianapolis, in maybe in Illinois, New York. And so there are people buying cars uh, made all over, but also cars are being very 
useful for for just getting around this kind of spread out area. Um, it's been documented that, you know, around 1909 or so, there are all these people coming out to Amarillo from, say, Indiana or Illinois, and they want to buy land. They want to move out kind of into the panhandle. And then what's happening is agents are meeting them at the at the train station saying, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll show you this land out here. And they drive them like 20 miles out in a car, well, somebody who's maybe not used to riding in a car that much, they're going to be like, oh, it's really quick to get from Amarillo out to this land I'm buying. And then it's only after they actually move out here and they get on land, they're like, oh, I'm 20 miles out from the city. And basically, if you want to get back to the city, then you, you're going to have to have a car. And, and so it's becoming just such a kind of a common part of life then. And so the, the trip out to uh, the real estate was, mm-hmm. was probably deliberately fast in order to make sure that this illusion that you're actually not too far from the city, that that was probably good salesmanship. Most likely. Uh, yeah. Most most likely. Um, in your research, have you discovered much about what was either typical or unique about Amarillo car culture? Uh, let's say during the interwar years and the years of the, of the great depression. So we're talking about the 1920s, which is, I, I suspect most Americans, when they think about American history, they think, uh, okay, cars becoming, uh, a common phenomenon in the United States. That's the 1920s. And then of course uh, the 1930s and the great depression uh, put a, put a kind of a dent in that development or, or what, but what is typical or maybe uh, unique in Amarillo with regard to uh, those years and, and cars? Sure. That, that's a really good question because I think, you know, when I think of, of automobile focused cities, I think of like Los Angeles. And I think a lot of us would think of LA as like kind of the city that's built on cars. I would say in some ways, Amarillo is almost kind of a better example. It's not, you know, it's not Hmm. as big of a city as Los Angeles. It's not as internationally known in some ways, but, you know, look at the fact that, um, Amarillo is kind of rare because it actually has automobiles before it has streetcars. And if you look at certainly any city east of the Mississippi River or any kind of older city in the West, you're going to have streetcars by about the 1890s. Um, very extensive streetcar systems in, say, Chicago, Indianapolis, Richmond, Virginia by the 1890s. Amarillo doesn't see its first streetcar operating until about 1908. So if you want to get around Amarillo before 1908, you basically either need you know a horse or a car or you're going to be walking. Um, and so, so cars become very very well established before um, streetcars do. And the streetcars don't last very long. Um, 1908 is when they start operating. They're basically out of business by 1926. The first buses are being introduced by 1927. The streetcars never go back into business. When we talk about a city that ditches streetcars um, in favor of the automobile, we usually talk about Los Angeles doing that in 1946. 20 years before Los Angeles gets rid of its streetcars, Amarillo gets rid of its streetcars. And so people... Again, if you want to get around this kind of sprawling city, automobiles can be the best way to do that after about 1926, even before 1926, but certainly after 1926. I'm, I'm smiling because as, as you were saying that, I was sitting here looking at another quote from your article, and, it's, and, and this is what you said, quote, the largest city of the Texas panhandle was an automotive pioneer. And uh, so you're filling in some of the details there. I think think so. Yeah. Uh, Something else to consider is that 1926 is the year that um, uh, Route 66 basically comes to town. The original alignment through 6th Street um, is is officially designated, I believe, in 1926. So this this important signifier of automobile culture, Route 66, is coming through town at the very moment that the the town is becoming, the city of Amarillo is becoming 
almost entirely dependent on automobiles for mobility. I, so you, you've sort of already answered this question, but I want to go ahead and ask it anyway. And that is now my wife and I enjoy pedaling around on our, our bikes. Um, but we've noticed, of course, that in Amarillo, it's not particularly safe or easy uh, to, to ride bicycles. And my question is, how much of that do you think is typical of the U.S. today? And how much of that is directly related to the fact that Amarillo, Texas, really grows up during the progressive era and has always been uh, very much, as you pointed out, a, a car town. Yeah. I mean, the irony is that the first people who wanted good roads and like hard streets were, were bicyclists. Like if you go back to the late 1800s, the first people who initiate what we call the good roads movement are like members of the League, League of American Wheelmen who they say we need better streets better roads so that we can ride our bicycles. But then, of course, by about 1904, 1905, automobiles very much become kind of take over those streets and then they they become thoroughfares. Like I always tell my students, if you go back and look at like a picture of, say, a street in downtown New York in the late 1800s or something, you're going to see not you know, my students are like, well, you're going to see horses and wagons, you know, carriages. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're also going to see people like standing around in the middle of the street because streets are gathering places. They're not thoroughfares. Like we can't do that today. Like I'm at, you know, I'm teaching a Canyon and I'm like, I can't go out out in the middle of fourth Avenue and just like stand there and like try to teach my class because that's not how we use streets anymore. We use them as thoroughfares. And a lot of that's because we've become so dependent on automobiles and bicycles kind of at a certain point become kind of, uh, known as as a as a technology more for children than for for adults, and I think of course we've you know um, we, we're some people are trying to change that, but um, but yeah, I think a lot of cities become very very quickly become very dependent on automobiles to the point where it excludes any other kind of usage of of city streets. Um, now historians have kind of gone back and looked at say cities like Pasadena, California, and they do have bike paths around the turn of the century, around to the 1890s, early 1900s. But very quickly, they basically say, yeah, there's no need in investing in a lot more of these because everybody's using cars instead of bicycles. Wow, very interesting. And so this this emphasis on uh, good streets, good roads. Uh, paving, that sort of thing, uh, leads me right into something that you mentioned in the article. And that is when you look around in Amarillo, Texas, you see a lot of brick paved streets. So Mm -hmm. in Wolfland, downtown, of course, uh, many miles, I would say, of, of brick paved streets here in Amarillo. And how would you relate that to the story of, uh, of cars and automobiles in this city? Yeah, there's a, there's a good uh, 1981 historic building survey for Amarillo where they say that Amarillo may have more visible brick streets in 1981 than any other city of its size in the United States, which I think is, is really amazing. And, you know, in the town where I grew up in Illinois, we had some brick streets. And so I noticed those when I first came here, but I didn't know the history. I'm just like, wow, these are old bricks. And then I got doing some of this research. And what I discovered is it's in the spring of 1910 that the city of Amarillo votes to take out about a $75,000 bond issue in order to pave um, streets in downtown and in surrounding residential uh, neighborhoods with brick. Um, I think the Chamber of Commerce says we should 
take out $125,000, but they only do $75,000. And these are bonds bought by investors in New York and Chicago and places like that. But what's really amazing about that is that if you put it in the context of what's going on just literally like six months earlier, it's in October, September and October of 1909 that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the brickyard as we all know it, it, that's when it gets paved with brick because it's originally tar and gravel the, the first races at Indianapolis are so deadly. I mean, just people are, are going off the track. They're creating ruts that are dangerous. And they realize they're either going to have to close the thing down or they're going to have to do something. And they, they experiment. They, they do tests. They figure out what's the best paving material. And they say, let's do bricks. And they buy 3.2 million bricks from various Indianapolis brick manufacturers. And they put them down. And all of a sudden, they're like, okay, let's a much safer place. We can go higher speeds. Now, today, brick is not probably our most cutting-edge paving test technology, but in 1909, 1910, it really is. And that's the exact moment that Amarillo does that, that puts down those brick streets that we've probably all seen um, in and around downtown. And um, yeah, it's partly because everybody is starting to use automobiles and they figure that's kind of the best thing that they can use uh, for automobiles is to put, to put these, these paving bricks down. Absolutely fascinating. So basically at the same moment in U.S. history, when the brickyard is becoming the brickyard, Amarillo, Texas is saying, hey, let's pave lots and lots of streets uh, with with bricks. 1911, I think, is when most of those bricks go down. And it's it's interesting because, you know, if you go read, say, the Good Roads magazines, the, the trade magazines from the early 1900s, they're actually quoting engineers who are saying things like, well, these the, these speedways like the one in Indianapolis, they're, of course, being built for the purposes of auto racing, but they're actually serving as almost like a laboratory where we can see just how quickly and efficiently cars can move over land if they have a good paving technology. And they're basically saying, yeah, let's watch what's happening in Indianapolis and cities around the country are going to do the same thing. And and Amarillo is a good example of that not the only one, but a very good example of a city that immediately says, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's put down bricks and um, and it'll be better for people to get around the city. Absolutely fascinating. So you see a lot of the the, the spirit of the progressive era uh, alive and well, absolutely. Uh, in in Amarillo at the, the beginning of the 20th century. Anything else from that that article as you as you remember your research and and, and what you wrote uh, there that you would want to highlight or or emphasize or maybe something I haven't asked about? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I think kind of the the larger connections that we're seeing to other places. You know, they would do. Uh, not just in in Texas, uh, but they would do these in what they called endurance contests in the early 1900s. Uh, sometimes they're called Glidden tours, um, sponsored by a, a Charles Glidden out of Boston, um, where they would. It's not a race exactly, but people would you know get in their cars and see how far they could drive basically without breaking down. And Amarillo was on the route of a couple of those. There's one in particular that went from I believe Denver down to Mexico City in the early 1900s. Um, you know, we're starting to see these highways that are being built across the country, not just Route 66, but some of these named highways. Um, and, and people are saying, hey, we should we should we should get these highways through this city. And really, people, local boosters especially, are starting to talk about Amarillo as this kind of like like highway center for Texas. I mean, they're, they're kind of envisioning it as this kind of centrally located place. Um you know, today, I mean, we we recognize it's not a, a Houston or a Dallas in terms of size, in terms of transportation centrality, but it they're anticipating this notion that it is kind of an important point where um, people can travel through on their ways to other places. Very interesting. 
Super interesting. Um, you you also have published um, an, an article more uh, more recently in 2020. Uh, you had published in the Panhandle Plains Historical mm-hmm. Review an article titled, and I know we're not here to talk about baseball, but the title of this article was The Yellow City's Tenuous Hold on the Gold Sox, subtitled Affiliated Texas League Baseball in Amarillo, 1959 to 19. Uh, 82. And the reason I mentioned that is I just, I, I just wonder uh, what other Amarillo uh, panhandle uh, history projects uh, do you have in the works? Maybe a public publication I've missed. Um, what, what, what else have you written about uh, Amarillo in this area uh, that might be of, uh, of interest to, uh, to, to our listeners and uh, something already published or something in the works? Sure. Yeah. I, I, it was a lot of fun to write that, uh, that, that baseball article uh, where it actually started was, you know, I, I went to a whole bunch of sod poodles games in 2019 and right about the time they, they won the, uh, the, the Texas league championship. I was, I was talking to somebody and they're like, yeah, you know, back, back in the sixties, you know, we packed people into Potter County Memorial stadium and it was great. And I was like, you know, I actually don't think they were quite that successful in packing people into that stadium. So I said, I, I, I should do the research and find out if, that's actually what was happening or not. And so, so it was a lot of fun to write that. And by, by the way, as we're speaking, it is, it is sod poodles opening day. I'm pretty sod excited poodles about that. Opening day. Um, but 2022. what I think is interesting again, where we can see kind of national trends manifesting themselves locally is if you look at Potter County stadium, uh, which opens in the, in the early mid 19, I think mid 1950s, um, you know, I saw some games at Potter County stadium when I first moved here and it was, you know, it was, a, it was a little sad in terms of the condition of the, the stadium. It was a fun place to go see a game, but, but not, uh, let's say not deluxe accommodations exactly. But back in the mid-50s, that was that was cutting edge. I mean, they the people who built that, they went up to, I think, Denver, and, and they went down to Dallas to see what like a really good minor league stadium was. And if you look at like the trends in Major League Baseball um, stadium construction in the 1950s, this is totally following it. Um, 19, early 1950s, uh, Milwaukee builds County Stadium, and that's how they're able to get the Braves to relocate from Boston out to Milwaukee. Um, and um, that's that's the first Major League franchise to relocate in 50 years. They move out to Milwaukee. People love it, but what's really significant about that stadium is it's one of the first kind of suburban major league stadiums. It's out on the edge of town. It's surrounded by giant parking lots where the, you know, good people in Milwaukee love to go out and uh, tailgate and drink beer and eat sausages and things like that. I mean, uh, look at where they put Potter County Stadium because the previous stadiums, you know, they'd had one downtown and then they build a, a another one later at the fairgrounds and then. Potter County Stadium replaces that one at the fairgrounds. But to get to the fairgrounds, how do you, how do you get there in the 1950s? You got to drive. It's very much I don't know if I'd call it suburban exactly, but it's kind of an edge city um, stadium that's dependent on automobiles to to get out there to to see the the sport. Now, you know, of course, recently we're we're following a, a late 20th, early 21st century trend of building Hodgetown downtown as kind of part of a I don't know if I want to call it urban urban renewal strategy exactly, but certainly kind of a, as an attempt to kind of build up downtown downtown revival. Yeah, uh, it's, project. it's mm-hmm. just like a, like a Camden Yards or something that's designed to kind of bring people back into downtown as opposed to funneling them out to the edge of town, like sure. Potter County Stadium. And and so I suppose that when Amarillo looked at places like Oklahoma City or Memphis, they mm. say, hey, it's working there. It seems to be working pretty well in those places. So yeah, uh, I, why not here? I have a student right now who's writing a, a research paper about the 
the Oklahoma City AAA Stadium, Bricktown Stadium, that's built in the 1990s. And I, I suspect that, yeah, that's probably a, a one of one of a number of, of models that Amarillo is looking towards when they build Hodgetown, what, about 20, start talking about about 27, well, not start talking about it, but start, start breaking ground about 2017 or 2018. So, Brian, we've been going, you know, basically chronologically through the history of cars, automobility, car culture, streets, that sort of thing uh, here in Amarillo. And so from uh, taking it from there and going forward, uh, what would you say about what happens to cars and car culture and streets and, and that sort of thing in the in the very important these boom years uh, that follow the end of uh, the the Second World War. So post 1945 Amarillo, what does that look like? What are the major developments? What what changes things in this city with regard to cars? Sure. I mean, there's there's a lot of post 1940 growth kind of in Western cities in general, but especially in Amarillo because of Pantex, because of the Air Force Base. I mean, the, the growth in the 1950s is just Unbelievable. You can see that, of course, in terms of how how much of the housing stock of this city still dates from probably about, I don't know, 1948 to about 1964, right? That probably 16-year period has so many houses. But you can especially see this, let's say if if you looked at three highways built in, around, or through the city, um, in the post-World War II period. And first of all is, you know, we, we talked earlier about Route 66, the old alignment on 6th Street. But of course, by the 1950s, that moves out to Amarillo Boulevard. Because before the 50s, only part of Amarillo Boulevard is there. It, only part of that is Route 66. But then later, it basically bypasses um, the city and goes around the city. Um, and if you go, of course, if you've ever driven Amarillo Boulevard, especially kind of out towards like the VA hospital and stuff, basically, it's, it's almost like a, a kind of trial run for the interstate. So that's how they're starting to build these bypasses in the post-World War II period. You can see this in other Route 66 towns like Bloomington, Illinois. You've got these kind of um, proto-interstates kind of going around the city. But then by the mid-1950s, cities are saying, okay, we need um, we need expressways. And so the Canyon Expressway uh, starts out as a, as a state-funded uh, limited access highway in the 1950s. It's not complete until about 1960s or so, but they're building that and, you know, there are some neighborhoods that you, where you can see, you know, it goes from the the highway kind of cuts through the middle of a neighborhood to the neighborhood is built around um, the Canyon Expressway. And that's where you start to see that 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 highway is being planned and the, and the developers are actually building around it. And then, of course, by the 1960s, then you've got Interstate 40 kind of cutting right through the middle of the city. And there were some serious debates. Uh, probably some people listening to this maybe even remember some of this. There were serious debates about where they were going to put um, Interstate 40. Some people wanted it kind of bypass um, the, the fairly, you know, well, well-heeled neighborhoods that it eventually does go through. Um, and there were some lawsuits. Um, you can actually find like the addresses of people on like Wolfland Avenue who were suing the state and suing the city of Amarillo over where to put Interstate 40. Now, eventually the engineers went out and they cut it right through the middle of the city. They say, well, that's going to be more efficient for driving. People are going to use less gas getting through the city. It's just it's better for the state to put um, the highway where they do, but there's some serious fighting against that. And of course they tear down a lot of houses where that, um, that turbine interchange is, um, 
present day I-27, the Canyon Expressway and Interstate 40, that was a neighborhood. Um, and like there was an 82 year old woman and her daughter and their cats that, you know, get evicted in 1964. Um, it's reported in the newspaper and, and the sheriff is kind of like, you know, yeah, well, you know, this is the price of progress, but maybe it's kind of too much uh, price for progress. Um and there's like one family I'm thinking of in particular. It was a, a, a Santa Fe Railway brakeman uh, named, uh, the last name of the family was Ryan. And you can actually kind of see how Amarillo is growing southwestward if you look at where they're moving. Because they had lived, I forget exactly which street it is, but it's one of the streets named after a president. And uh, it's, it's right there by US 87. And in about 1955, when they're building the Canyon Expressway, their street gets torn down basically for an on-ramp to the Canyon Expressway. So they move to um, the neighborhood right about 34th in Georgia, house built in 1955. So they're kind of moving out along the Canyon Expressway. And then by about 1956 or 1957, well, John McCarty comes along and he buys Section 229 down a little bit farther southwest, uh, just west of Georgia Street. And uh, he starts building a new subdivision. And John McCarty decides he's going to give away a house in his new subdivision. It's called the Millionaire's Christmas. You can register at the Piggly Wiggly. You can register at, you know, the local insurance company or whatever. And the Ryan family wins John McCarty's giveaway. And he thinks nobody's going to take it because, well, you're going to have to pay all these taxes. Well, the Ryan family is pretty well established. They're able to pay the taxes. They go buy this. They go take this fully furnished home that's worth probably $360,000 in today's money, about thirty-five dollars or $36,000 in $1956. And they move once again um, out to another brand new subdivision that's being built along the Canyon Expressway. And I think that's a good way of kind of seeing how cars and highways and this kind of expansion in the 1950s, this very rapid expansion, is is moving people um, farther and farther from, from the de- kind of downtown old neighborhoods out into these new kind of edge city neighborhoods. So let, let me set up this next question uh, by, by mentioning a couple of things. So, uh, Brian, you're an American historian who mm-hmm. uh, moved to Amarillo, Texas, uh, several years ago because you were uh, the newly named uh, professor of history at uh, WT, and you've been doing that ever since. And so after moving here, you decided, hey, among my various uh, research projects. I'm just going to look at local history yeah. and think about local baseball and local car culture and that sort of thing. And so, uh, my, my, and you've got these two publications that we've already talked about. And my question is, uh, do you plan maybe eventually to produce a, a book about the history of this city or the region around uh, Amarillo? Yeah, Could that I, be in the works? Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I'm still working on non-Amarillo stuff. I'm trying to get this Indianapolis book published and I've got something on Dallas-Fort Worth that's coming out. I've, I've really moved a lot into urban history uh, the last few years. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I definitely would like to do a book that's kind of 20th century kind of urban planning and automobility in Amarillo. I'm, I might I might, uh, I might try to lift a title from Terry Allen and call it like Amarillo Highways or something like that. But, yeah, sounds, I'd, I'd love cool. to do that and kind of talk about, especially in the post-World War II period, how the city very much develops kind of towards the southwestern part of the city around suburbia. Um, I mean, if you think about the fact now, I mean, where's the center of population in Amarillo? It's not downtown. It's not even close to downtown. It's probably, I would guess, somewhere around, around the Puckett subdivision or or paramount or or one of those areas i mean that's really where the center of of the city is at um and and that's very much a it kind of starts in the 20s but very much a post-world war ii phenomenon um 
uh, especially when the Canyon Expressway is built in the 1950s, that people are kind of moving towards the southwestern edge of town. And I, I'm just kind of fascinated by the way uh, this is a, a city kind of entirely built around automobiles um, and, and one that people... You know, I think when people think of the history again of this area, they think cattle ranching and maybe, you know, um, you know, we think of uh, irrigating and agriculture. We think of um, oil and natural gas and those things are super important. But I also kind of uh, I think it's it's good to think of this as, as a place that's kind of built around these these modern concepts. Very interesting. And, and I can just I can only say thanks for kind of like highlighting this you know, since forgotten aspect of early Amarillo uh, history, that's like basically what good historians do. And, and I also want to say, you know, I just really ad- admire and appreciate your productivity as an historian. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're always at it. You're always working yeah. uh, and uh, conducting research and uh, reading other people's work. And you're in the primary sources, you're in the secondary sources and writing good history. So that's a, that's a great contribution, uh, not just to the, to the field of American history, but much more specifically to uh, the history of this area, which uh, our listeners are, are interested in. Yeah. So uh, if you're, if you're so inclined, go, go look up the name Brian M. Ingracia. Uh, and and find some of the work that he's produced uh, in the, just in the time that he's been in this area about this place, and we'll we'll look forward to uh, to more of that uh, in the future. Thank you very much. You Appreciate bet. it. You bet.